Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. First, good morning. Welcome uh, to those of you who are worshiping online with us at home, those of us who are worshiping here in the house of God. It's great to be together. Second, off my salmon pants. The Word of God says, blessed is he who sitteth not in the seat of mockers. So, don't know what to say for you. (laughs) Yeah, they look good. Thank you. I sensed the admiration. Yeah, thank you. Did you see, though, that Kelly was in salmon and Sarah was in salmon? So, it's like, obviously, the Holy Spirit is in salmon this morning, and some of us missed the memo is all. I don't know how that happened. So have you noticed that the NBA is back? They're the first major sports league to figure it out. And I'm a basketball guy, so I pay attention. But I think it's genius how they're doing it. They've created this bubble. And all the players, the coaching staff, the media, they're all um, quarantined there. And they've had zero cases since they've been there. And they've even created an experience that simulates what you're used to seeing on TV where there's fake crowds. You know, they video edit in fans sitting in seats and then there's, they pipe in crowd noise. It's amazing. Uh, in fact, it inspired me that if we couldn't do this before too long, I was going to like, I was going to like video simulate Eddie Montoya sitting there and things like that. Uh, and they've been like, there was a random goat in the seats and things like that. So it's, it's genius. But here's the thing. I, I've found over the last five months a very strange phenomenon. I'm missing crowds. Like I miss being in a crowd. The thing I used to complain about, I was so crowded, like the mall at Christmas. I miss the mall at Christmas time. It's weird. Like we, a group of us that are basketball fans, um, pooled our money and got a couple of season tickets for the Nuggets this year. It was fantastic. You know, we went and saw a, a few games each and, um, y- you know, the, the stale popcorn and the overpriced sodas and the whole thing. But watching on TV, just it's not quite the same. I miss being with the crowd. David, the king and worship leader of the people of Israel, captured this lament, Psalm 42. He said, my heart is breaking. As I remember how it used to be, I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. He lamented the loss of corporate worship and being able to lead it and be a part of it. And you know, the, the old translations say, uh, I remember with heavy heart when I led the festive throng in joyful procession to the house of God. And by about last month, I was lamenting with David, missing the festive throng, joyful procession to the house of God. We've got a, a festive throng here this morning, a smaller throng than, than used to be, but um, festive nonetheless. I'll tell you what, festive throng. Can we shout out to our second service online portion of our congregation? I don't even know what to call that, online community. You guys let them know that you're here and we love them. Come on. Yeah. We love you guys. Now, if you're part of the festive throng on your couch, or maybe you just woke up and you're in your bathrobe and you have your coffee and you're not quite festive yet, you can shout out these guys with like the praise hands and the comments and things like that. 
We have to work to come to, to the house of God in joyful procession these days. But man, it's worth the work. We're looking this month at what it means to live together. We take our series from a verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we studied last week. It says, Christ Jesus died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, whether we're in a pandemic or whether times are normal, whether the economy is right side up or upside down, whatever the case, that we might live together with him. And that live together, hamaz, the Greek word, has both a, a horizontal and vertical component. If you think of it like in Cartesian space, the y-axis, like live together with Jesus, together with our sisters and brothers. And it's that life together that we're trying to understand. Every year at this time, as we prepare for sort of church new year in the fall, all the more as we're in such a time of crisis, I think it behooves us to zoom out and re-ask the question, what does it mean to be the church? You know, because vision leaks and values drift. And we might have started off 12, 13 years ago with a true north, but a couple degrees drift at a time and we could wake up and realize we're going in a completely different direction than Jesus established us. Jesus said, I will build my church, as you've heard me say over and over again. No qualifications, no conditions guaranteed. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And coronavirus will not prevail against it. And global economic recession will not prevail against it. Racial tension will not prevail against it. Only we can undo the work that Jesus is doing through us, his church. He said, I will build my church. Now, no promises about your church, but I'll build my church. So we pause at this time each year and ask, what does it mean to be Jesus's church? And what does that one look like? Mark chapter four, Jesus gives us another glimpse, kind of the prequel to the launch of his church that is documented in the book of Acts. Jesus is modeling what they go on to build. It says, once again, Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore and a very large crowd soon gathered around him. So he got in a boat. And I think some in the post 90s megachurch movement have said the point isn't the big gathering. The point is living in close, intimate fellowship, you know, neighborhood um, church and things like that, which is good and right and true. And we're going to get to that. But maybe we've read this to say Jesus saw a very large crowd gathering. And so he got in a boat and took off. But that's not what he did. He got in a boat in order to be able to talk to them. And then he taught them. The people remained on the shore and he told them many stories in the form of parables. And he went on to teach them and then said in verse 9, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Point being, I'm going to say this, I hope you're taking it in, but there's the very real practical possibility that you might not have ears to hear right now. You might not be able to take it in. But later, look, verse 9, Sorry, verse 10, when Jesus was alone with the 12 and the other inner circle disciples, they asked him what the parables meant. So Jesus valued and built on the very large crowd, which we learn later was quite diverse. It was from Galilee there, but also Judea and also as far north as Tyre and Sidon. It was a more diverse and less homogenous group than strictly the people who are used to living together in the backwater villages of Galilee where Jesus was from. And then later when he's alone with his inner circle crew, they're like, so we, let's just say someone like my friend, I have a friend who didn't have ears to hear. 
And he told me that he didn't understand that like second to last parable. What would you tell me to tell him? And Jesus is like, it's all right, guys, let's talk about it. And they asked him questions, and he answered the questions, and they interacted, and they digested and chewed on God's Word and processed it together. And what you see is that Jesus built his church this way. He modeled what he built through the first century apostles, and that is he built it on the many and on the few. Jesus built his church to need the big gathering and to need the small gathering as well. Each had its purpose. It's a bit of a culture war in the church right now. And I say this with all respect and love for the church and freely admitting that I'm looking through the same mirror and dimly. But in the 90s and post-90s megachurch movement, the sense was that the thrust of the church was the big gathering. The bigger, the more festive, the better. And so we got lights and fog machines and all this to make the throng throngier and festiver, right? And then there came along a counter movement that said, you know what, that... That's not really the thing. Really, the thing is meeting in homes and breaking bread and being in each other's life and life on life and all that. And so we had, we had a counter movement of, of neighboring and, and home church. And both, I believe, reflect Jesus' heart. It's not Jesus' ideal for his church that we build it either on the big meeting or on the small meeting, but that we build it on both. And you see this in the way Jesus went on to build his church. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to dive in and stay this morning. In verse 1, it says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. So they were there having a big group meeting, like a big Sunday morning service. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Now, the context, what were they doing there? Jesus had, at the end of his life, after rising from the dead, said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And it says in John chapter 20, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What scripture describes as two things. One, a a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance, the rest of what was to come. And then two, a seal marking them as saved, if you will, for Jesus. And then if you put together these complicated but important last days of Jesus, like a patchwork or a mosaic um, from the different gospel accounts. In Matthew, we have the famous Great Commission where Jesus, just before being taken up to heaven, says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, you all go and make disciples of all nations. He charges them and says, go out and change the world. But then Luke chimes in in Acts chapter 1, the sequel to the gospel of Luke, and he says that Jesus says, yes, indeed, you're going to go. You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But first, wait here. Stay here in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And so that's where they are when this Acts chapter 2 account begins, waiting in Jerusalem, waiting around for God knows what. And you can imagine that the tension got thick in that room where Peter's like, wait in Jerusalem. He can't mean wait. 
He's like doing like the original language study with, that you do when you want the scriptures to mean something other than what they obviously say. And he's doing the theological gymnastics and he's like, I think what he really meant was wait, um, like the messianic secret thing he did, wait to tell the whole story. And they're like, Peter, don't do it. We're not doing it. This time we're listening to him. We're staying put. And James kind of asserts his brother of the Savior authority, and he's like, sit your booty down, Peter. We're waiting. What are we even waiting for? You know it got thick in that upper room, right? But the truth is, Jesus told them, receive the Holy Spirit, <sighs> and breathed on him. And then he said, wait until you're clothed with power from on high. Why couldn't he have just clothed me? Well, I mean, they got the bread thing wrong, thinking he literally meant bread when he was talking about bread. They might have got the clothing thing wrong too. I can imagine Peter being like, what are we even waiting for? Is it like a tailor going to come in and fit us with a custom suit to go out and preach the gospel? What kind of clothing are we waiting for? Nobody saw this coming. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. And normally when we talk about the first portion of Acts chapter 2, it's almost exclusively in the context of the ministry, the significance, the relevance of the Holy Spirit. Very important subject. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. But today, I want you to see this in a different light. Change lenses and look at it through the lens of what does it mean to be the church. Jesus said, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to build my church, but I want you to wait for something that you don't understand. And so the question that I want to ask here today is not, what did he tell them to wait for? Viable question. Probably the primary teaching point of this passage. I want to ask, though, why did he ask them to wait until this time? Like, why this many days and not shorter? Why not just give it to them all at once? We think of Pentecost in light of Pentecostalism and in association with the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost long preceded this outpouring and Jesus' prophetic fulfilling of what was foretold in Joel chapter 2. The day of Pentecost was a feast, one of the Old Testament worship celebrations where people would come together. Think of Thanksgiving where your aunts and uncles and cousins, everyone gets together. But people who were scattered far abroad who were Jews but had been persecuted by the Roman Empire or for one reason or another had gone to a different part of the country or the world, they would come back to Jerusalem. It was on that day when the most possible diversity was there that Jesus chose to launch. People were completely amazed, verse 7. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. There are Europeans in this crew. There are Arabs. Clearly, there are Israelis, as we know them today. There are Africans. The known world was represented in all of its cultural, traditional, and ethnic diversity. And on that day, Jesus said, all right, now go. Jesus built it on the day of Pentecost, I would suggest on purpose. It's in keeping with the way he did things and the way he taught. Remember David's lament? As I 
used to lead the festive throng in joyful procession to the house of God. I think what Jesus' church in its first formation teaches us is that we need the festive throng. We need it to learn unity and to receive its blessing. Psalm 133 teaches how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard. Aaron's beard, it goes on to say, who is Aaron, the first priest? This isn't any old oil. This isn't like when you trip in the kitchen while carrying the canola oil. This is the sacred anointing oil representative of the personal, intimate presence of God that distinguished the priests. And he says, unity, God's people, a kingdom of priests together is that sacred. It's that precious. And listen, it closes out this little three-verse psalm with this. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. There in the place of unity, when God's people come together from Parthia and Rome and the, the Cyrene's region and everywhere else, and they figure out amid the, the myriad of languages, traditions, cultures, church heritage, ethnicity, how to be one. There in that work for unity, as we talked about last week, not only is the glory of God revealed, but there his fullest blessing is bestowed. And we need the festive throng for that. Last week we talked about how our oneness is our revelation of the glory of God, and that unity is only meaningful in the context of difference. It's easy to mistake sameness for unity. I've heard people at different times say things like, you know what, um, I, there's too much disagreement or discord, and I need to go to a church where I, I experience more unity because that's what God wants. And where we end up is at a place that looks thinks and practices just like us. And I would say, maybe it's not unity you're looking for, but uniformity. See, because there is a difference. It's easy to confuse it, but there's a difference between sameness and oneness. But unity is only meaningful in the context of our differences. That's what we talked about last week. And here we see corporate worship. If we're in our oneness, our striving for unity, revealing the glory of God, our corporate worship is like a glory lab. This is where we figure out what that looks like and contend for the blessing which it promises. In verse 38, back to Acts 2, Peter's preaching in response to this moment of opportunity. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then listen, very important, verse 40, Peter continued preaching for a long time. When Jesus builds his church, he intends for the preacher to preach for a long, long time. Just let that sink in. I really, it's not even a very funny joke, I just needed to hear like actual humans laughing. You have no idea how hard it is to look at a camera on your kitchen counter and tell a joke and wait or not. It's horrible, horrible. Okay, Peter continued preaching for a long time. And those, verse 41, who believed what Peter said were baptized, and they weren't added to the role. They weren't put into the political party. They weren't enrolled in the next rally. They were added to the church that day. 
See, that was the foundation of the church. It was built on that large corporate expression of worship. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 41, as it turns out, is followed by verse 42. Here's why that's significant. Acts 2 verses 1 through 41 are almost invariably preached on the subject of the Holy Spirit and self-encapsulated. They end at 41. True application to be sure. And then Acts 1, 41, 42 rather to 47 are almost invariably preached apart from the rest of the chapter on the subject of small groups. Small group Sunday in every evangelical church, you're going to hear them preach Acts 2, 42. All the believers dwelled together and shared meals and fellowship and all that, right? Very important, very true. What is important to me and I think us today looking how Jesus built his church is that Acts 2, 41 and Acts 2, 42 sit right next to each other. See, this is all how Jesus built his church. He built it on the big and he built it on the small. Listen, 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what went on to be known as the word of God. It just hadn't been canonized as such yet, right? To fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do next week, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles formed performed rather many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Where church culture elevates one and diminishes the other, you see in Jesus' model of formation of his church how the small gathering complements the large. Jesus works in the large gathering. In one way, he works here in the small gathering in another and shows us not only do we need each other, to understand and experience unity and receive its blessing. But we need one another to meet together in small configurations. We need to meet in homes in order to share life together. Because doing this or doing this, sitting and watching a screen on your couch, or sitting and watching a screen in our auditorium doesn't naturally lead to sharing life together. It naturally leads to exactly what we do when we sit and watch other things from seats side by side people we like. We go to a movie, we watch, we laugh or cry, and we go home. And we never share life with the people who we put the obligatory one seat or now three seats between us and them. See, we need this for one reason, but we need that for a very different and hugely important reason, to share life together. The verse that is really the anchor here is verse 42. All the believers who gathered and were called the church in this 3,000 strong festive throng, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God in the context of meetings in homes, 
to fellowship. And that word fellowship is one of those sort of antiquated church words that many churches are tacking away from, but I want to redeem it. I think it's important because it captures something unique and specific and indispensable in the formation of Jesus' church. The Greek word there is koinonia. You've heard that word used perhaps if you've been around the church world for a while. And it comes from a verb Koinonia is a noun, but it comes from a a, a root verb that literally means to share in. And it's used in the New Testament in terms of participation, communion, right? Experiencing together, not witnessing, not spectating, but partnership, buy-in, ownership, interdependence. That's the connotation of koinonia, and that's why they met in home. They also, it says in this passage, continued to meet in the temple. So it wasn't like they had this big meeting once to gather a crowd, capitalize on the the diversity and population in the city on the day of Pentecost, and then it moved to homes after that. It was both and, right? They continued to meet in the temple, and they did that for corporate worship. They also did that to pool their resources and help provide means to take care of one another. Maybe somebody lost their job in the pandemic. Maybe somebody's had overwhelming health bills. They were able to play bigger than they were individually by pooling their resources. Kind of sounds like the storehouse, right? Exactly what we've been able to do during the last five months and the hard times they brought. There's a lobby full of backpacks out there that was us together pooling our resources sacrificially in order to share the love of Jesus in a practical way with some kids who were made in God's image and maybe just don't know it yet. So they did it corporately for that reason, but then they did it communally for a separate reason. And we're going to talk about this idea of koinonia, fellowship, what that means, why it's so important over the next few weeks. I would say, just to put a bookmark in it, that we were made for this. We were made for koinonia. We were made for fellowship, for sharing in life, for participating in one another's journey, not for co-spectating alone. There is something that this, what we're doing here, what you're doing there, accomplishes together as much as we're able to be, that that's never going to. But there's something that that achieves that very likely will never be gotten to here. Right? They would meet together in homes to study the word like Jesus' disciples. Hey, I don't really get that. Let's talk about it. Somebody's going to have insight on this or the Holy Spirit's going to illuminate that to somebody else. And then for the Lord's Supper and prayer, have you noticed something that's valuable but maybe less than just receiving communion in your home? The first time I'm serving communion to my family, I'm like, this is great. But there's something about experiencing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus coming to the Lord's table together serving one another that reinstalls and updates the software of my faith, right? So they would receive communion together and then they would share meals. And there's a a deep sharing of life that transacts, that begins when we share a meal. And that not only are we unlikely to do, we can't by law in this setting now, but we were made for this koinonia. And all the more now. You know what's remarkable? There's no more spectacularly diverse place in our country than that 
small, couple-mile, oblong island called Manhattan, where more than nine million people live, squashed together like sardines. You know what the number one problem is that people who live in New York City complain of? Loneliness. See, we're made to live in this glorious mishmash of unity, and we're made to share in life with a few. We're made for the many and for the few. And so that's where we're going this fall. Just wanted to let you know, kind of as we all are figuring out, what's it going to be like for our kids' schools? What's going to be like for our kids' sports teams? What's it going to be like for our college How do we do the social activities that we used to do? We all, most of us, imagined back in March that we'd be past this by now. But clearly we're not, and I don't know when we will be and what the world will look like when we are. And so what we're going to do is do what Jesus said. We're going to do today really well and let tomorrow worry about itself. And here's what today, this fall, is going to look like. We're going to continue to work hard, our team, our core team, to make the festive throng in mini-throng format possible for as many of us as we can. And at the same time, we're not going to put all our eggs in that basket. It's tempting right now, and we're watching some whom we look up to and respect try to wear themselves out to have services every day of the week so we can get everybody in because that's the thing. I say that's an important part of the thing. But at the same time, we're going to double down and reinvest in what has always been the backbone of our church. I remember years ago standing in front of an earlier conception of Denver United and saying, hey, guys on group Sunday or in August as we're ramping up toward groups, here's what um, I think could happen. One day, should it not be possible, like there's a government crackdown or China invades or something like that, and we can't meet together on a Sunday morning, I think our church doesn't miss a beat. It goes to ground, but the heartbeat of our church doesn't happen on Sunday morning. It happens on Monday through Saturday in living rooms and in boardrooms and on mountain trails all across the metro region. And I think not only would that continue, but it would deepen. And I didn't expect the world to take me up on it. I said that as a sort of outlandish hypothetical. But here we are, and guess what? Denver United's doing great. Now, are we all loving it quite as much? No, we were joking, George and I, last week that doing this this way, like watching me with a mask on, this is like twice the work and half the fun for us or less. But, you know, Jesus continues to fill us up. And man, how unfun has it been in centuries past. And yet, our church is thriving. We're growing. We're serving. We're shining Jesus in a time that he's more visible because the environment is comparatively darker. And that's just going to continue. So this fall, we're going to double down and we're going to make the strongest initiative yet in our 13 years of church existence for united groups. Because while we continue to work and make the festive throng part of the deal possible, To a certain extent, that's out of our control. So we're going to do this and double down on that. And here's why. We need one another now more than we ever have. Even participating in services, watching online, was there was a novelty at first, and then five months later, I think it's it's maybe a little stale or flat. But what if 
you and your united group, your little mini festive throng, your koinonia community, gathered on Sunday morning and watched service together and served communion to one another and prayed for one another as Anthony was praying with us. And then you had a meal together afterward. So we're asking a whole bunch of you to step up and consider leading a united group this fall. And some of you are like, you know, it's funny you should say that because I felt the Holy Spirit poking at me. If that's you, if you just had a funny you should say that moment, just do it. Skip all of the get together with me three times because we can't really or we could walk around Wash Park. I'd love to. Just do it. He's speaking to you. Take the step. God's going to meet you there. But some of us are like, yeah, maybe in like 10 years, but I'm not nearly ready. Neither were half the people who became officers in World War II, but they were battlefield commissioned because the U.S. Army needed them. Well, I think the Lord Jesus may need some of you to step up and you're like, yeah, but I still am not qualified to lead a Bible study. I don't have any answers about what the parables meant. Well, here's what you can do. Gather on Sunday morning. I'll teach the word or Neil or George or one of us. And then you just facilitate. And when you don't know, answer like Jesus. Be, when they ask you, what does this mean? That was confusing. And be like, what does the word of God say? How do you read it? Just put it back on them in the form of a question. They'll think you're wise. If you can open up your living room and host eight or 10 people, worship together, serve one another communion, you can lead a united group. And I think this fall, it would be amazing if 100% of us, however many of us there are, a couple thousand probably, who call themselves Denver United, were in a Koinonia Fellowship, a united group. So you heard Pastor George talk about it. You're going to hear Pastor Neil talk about it more. Go online, denverunited.com. Get on the calendar. Register for that training. Doesn't obligate you to lead a group, but you can't lead one without it. It'll get us all on the same page. Next Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, then you can attend service for the second service. It's on Zoom, so don't come here. You'll find the link and everything else on the website. We would love to process that with you. And then listen, I'll take as many laps around the park talking about it as you like. But how amazing would that be if there were room for every one of us to do Acts 2.42 this fall? And then, you know what? Pandemic, economy, come what may, Jesus always has equipped his church to endure unthinkable times together, and he always will. Amen? All right, it's time for us to go. Would you stand up with me? If you're at home, stand up with us. Pray in faith. Receive this blessing. We'll get out of here. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the truth and life that we find in the Word of God. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you caused something to happen and get written down that's so relevant to us today. Lord Jesus, would you cause us to see ourselves as you see us? And would you cause us, give us grace to live in community and not neglect meeting together? Lord, as we figure out how to rotate through live worship and then meet in our homes, would you give us grace one more time? The same Jesus, the same model for church that survived Roman oppression and Ottoman Empire domination and bubonic plague and communist China and Russia is going to survive this as well. Lord Jesus, thank you that you build your church, build it among us. Thank you that hell will not prevail against it. We trust you for that again today. 
And Lord, I pray this blessing over my friends. Everything that's weighing them down, would you lift it off? Give them grace to cast it onto you today. Every need, would you meet it according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus? Every worry, would you transform into faith? Give my friends grace to bring it to you in prayer. And God, let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for worshiping with us together today. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for wherever you are for being there and worshiping together with us here on Sunday morning or whatever time during in the week that you're worshiping with us. I love how Jesus continues to build his church. Don't forget, go online, denverunited.com. Sign up for new leader orientation next Sunday morning, and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 